once again, Israel is face-to-face with a trial of their faith. Their dependency upon God is being tested again and again and again. Last week, they were tested in chapter 16 with the need for food. Here, again, they are tested with a lack of water. The path of faith is always a path of testing. It always has been, and it always will be. This is one of the things about the path of faith that makes heaven so sweet and this earth so dim. Those who are led by God must expect to encounter conflict with this earth, conflict with the ways of this earth, conflict with the flesh, and a constant testing of their faith. Remember that God led them here. He knew there was no water in this place. One of the things that we are seeing, this constant theme of God leading his people to the place of testing, God's design for you and I is to wean us off of all earthly dependence. God's design for you and I is to bring us to a place where we come to see that there is nothing in this world that can sustain us. God's design is to bring us to a place where there is no reliance upon human resources, earthly material, and there is no option but to completely cast ourselves upon Him. And how slow and painful this lesson is. And how miserable and repeatedly we fail. Now notice that the people blame Moses. And we're not a whole lot different, folks. Often when our comforts are stripped, when we don't know how we're going to survive, we are quick to blame people. In this case... The spiritual leaders. Sometimes we blame ourselves when we're in a time of testing. Like, I'm here because I made a mistake. Sometimes we blame our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we blame the people of the world. But here is the first thing to realize. For the child of God, in every circumstance where our faith is tested, it is God who led us there. And we do not need to blame anybody for it. You will find when you study carefully Israel and they're wandering through the wilderness that every time they are tested, God brought them there. This truth will radically change the way you see testing in your life. And rather than looking for people to blame, 
rather than trying to figure out why there's no water, why there's no bread, why there's an enemy chasing us down, why this, why that, why is life hard, rather than focusing on all the why of it, we'll understand that my God, who is in divine control of the universe, and who holds the world in his hands, and who leads me, that God, my God, has led me here. And so this is a test for me to learn how to trust God, and this is an opportunity for God to reveal himself to me once again as the great provider. This is one of the constant themes that we're beginning to see emerge in the book of Exodus. And failing here repeatedly is part of the journey to true spiritual growth. So if you're failing here repeatedly, understand something. Most of us, if not all of us, have had the same experience. It is hopeful that we eventually grow in our faith and learn how to trust the Lord. And you will find that we do this in varying degrees. I would argue that in the Christian life, the testings that we go through early are not nearly as difficult as some of the testings that we grow, go through as we continue to age. And if we grow spiritually, what happens is, is that the severity of the test might continue to increase, but eventually they don't have the same hold in our life. You know, there's a great, a great example in the life of Abraham. God calls Abram to leave the land of Ur and he tells Abram, look, get, get your people and head out to a land I'll show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. You're just going to have to start walking until I show you. And Abraham, with great faith, says yes to God and begins that journey. As you know, he eventually falls on his face. He gets out in the journey, and he comes up against circumstances where he's afraid, comes up to a situation where he thinks that possibly they're going to kill him and, and take his wife. So he tells his wife, don't tell him we're married. Just tell him you're my sister. I mean, what a breakdown. And God protects Abraham's wife, does not allow the, the, uh, the king to take her, and God ultimately chastises Abram and is like, what are you thinking, man? I'm going to take care of you. And if you follow the story of Abraham, guess what? It happens again. Like two times he does it. But Abraham's story doesn't end there. And that's not the only failure that's recorded for us. But in the end, you find that after God gives him the chosen son that God had promised him, and God says to Abraham, I want you to take this gift of a son that I gave you, and I want you to give him back to me. And the boy had not, was not old enough to be married. He was not old enough to have children yet. And so God had promised Abraham, I'm going to make like a nation out of you. Well, that would mean this son would have to have children, yes? Well, before that happened, God says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to give him back to me. And we know the story of Abraham finally, after like 25 years of, of waiting for the promise, and then like another 10 to 15 of raising this son, nearly 40 years of this, 
we see Abraham come to the place in his faith where he says, I don't understand it all, but I know this. Everything God has told me has come to pass. And so I guess I don't have to understand it all. I just need to know what God has said. This is what he said. And so let's go do it. And you know the story. He gets all the way to the place of raising that knife to bring down on his son, to sacrifice his son to the Lord. Didn't make sense to him. But in that moment, God speaks out and says, hold on a second, son. That was never really the plan. I just wanted to know if I really had you. Listen, it took Abraham about 40 years to get there, people. And so be encouraged to know that even the great fathers of our faith, there was this process of becoming great men and women of faith. And this is one of the most important lessons that we can learn, is that when we are brought to the time of testing, it is God that has brought us there. We also begin to see in our story in Exodus what a great spiritual leader looks like when we study Moses. Moses makes no reply to the cruel accusations of these people against him. Instead, he simply cries out to God and says, God, what should I do? There's a great lesson here for those of us that God has called to lead people. We are to be patient, we are to be loving, we are to feed the flock. And any time that you ever start feeling sorry for yourself, because people that you're discipling don't listen, they don't grow the way you want them to grow, just try to get this picture in your mind of what it was like when the Lord Jesus Christ, on the final night before he's crucified, is sitting there and all of his disciples still don't fully get it. I mean, he's had like nearly three years with them daily. You know, like he's, he's, he's teaching them privately, personally. They're following him around. And even after three years of following the greatest teacher in the history of the world and watching him demonstrate his teachings and then give them extra insight into his teachings, even after three years, they're all going to flee and abandon him. So you and I, when our disciples don't do everything we think they should do, we need to get off of our little pity party and recognize the right thing to do when you feel wronged, when you feel like things aren't going right, is do what Moses did, learn to hit your knees and simply cry out to God and say, God, what would you have me to do here? Moses is a fantastic picture of what a spiritual, mature leader looks like. Now, I want you to consider that Israel is headed to the promised land. And if Israel were, instead of going through the wilderness, just like transported straight out of Egypt, boom, to the promised land, could you imagine how much loss there would be for you and I in coming to understand the condition of the human heart? Coming to see just how difficult this journey of faith is. Had they just been transported to Canaan, they would have not been the great sad examples for you and I. But their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they supply us this volume of warning, of encouragement, of instruction 
that help us in our wilderness journey. Today, we're not focusing on those things. We've spent the last two weeks already looking at some of the major lessons that we can learn about the wilderness journey. Today, we're going to focus on God's answer to this situation. This is the second time they've needed water. It will not be the last. But God does something different this time to bring them water. God's answer to their need this time was the smitten rock. God would have Moses take elders with him and take his rod and strike the rock and then God would cause water to flow out of the rock. What kind of an answer is this? So the rock is a uh, analogy of Jesus Christ. In fact, look what 1 Corinthians 10 says about this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Now look at verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink for... They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The Bible teaches us that this picture of the rock that followed them, from which the water flowed, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what can we learn about Jesus through studying the rock this morning? And I want us to look at simply four lessons the rock teaches us about Jesus. Number one this morning, note that Moses was to strike the rock with the rod of judgment. So the staff of Moses was a symbol of judgment. I'm going to show you that now, but I'm also going to show you how later a different staff is used in Numbers 20. To bring water from the rock. And that staff is not Moses' staff. Because that staff is no longer a staff of judgment. But the first time the rock is struck. It is struck by the rod of judgment. We learn that Moses' staff is a staff of judgment. The very first time we're heard, we hear of it is in Exodus 4.3. When God tells Moses to take that staff. Throw the staff on the ground. And it becomes what? A serpent that slithers on the ground. A picture of the first judgment that came to Satan when he was cursed here on this earth. Then, when the plagues would come, Moses was to take his his staff, as we even see here, God says, the staff with which you struck the Nile. God's very specific in that term, as if Moses would wonder which staff it was. God could have simply said, take your staff. But he clarifies the staff with which you struck the Nile. And when he struck the Nile, what happened to the water? It turned to blood. Moses' staff 
was a symbol of the judgment of God. And this is the lesson. That the rock, before it can give us life-giving water, it must be struck down. That is the lesson. Christ had to be struck down before He could give us the life-giving water that He speaks of at the well. He was struck with the rod of judgment. But Christ was not merely struck one time. The judgment that came upon Christ was ruthlessly relentless. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there we would see strike after strike after strike after strike from His own disciples abandoning Him from Peter denying him publicly, to his false trial before the Sanhedrin, to those who would stand up and lie because they were paid to lie and accuse him of falsehoods, to eventually Pilate trying to flog him and beat him a good beating in hopes that it would satisfy the Jewish people and the Pharisees. But even after his flogging, The people cried out, it's not enough. Crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. And Jesus was crucified. And He hung there and He bled and He died and He finally breathed His last breath. And I asked the question, why? Because the rock must be struck down before living water can pour forth. This is what God is teaching us and telling us about the rock. If the people were to drink, the rock had to be smitten. It's worth noting as a side note that first in Exodus chapter 16, we have the bread come down from heaven to feed the people. Then comes the smitten rock. I don't think God ever leaves details out. It's interesting that first Jesus comes down from heaven and is the bread of life coming to nourish and care for his people. Then he becomes the smitten rock. Secondly, this morning, notice that water poured out from the rock. Now, then it wasn't just some stream. I mean, it poured out. And I want us, I pray the Holy Spirit will help me this morning. Somehow get the words out that God has put in my heart on this point. First of all, I want to prove it. Look what uh, Psalm 105.41 says. He, that means God, He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. So we now have the Bible explaining to us what it looked like. I want you to picture that for a moment. Millions of people who need water. The rock is struck and it pours out, like gushing out, this river of water through the desert. Get that picture in your mind. This is a picture of God pouring out His Spirit upon the church once the rock would be smitten. And God said, when you get this picture, 
I want you to understand the way I pour things out. I mean, honestly, if there's a river flowing, and I just pray you'll get this in your mind the way God put it in mine. If there's a river flowing through the desert, how much can you drink out of a river? I mean, it's hard to get all of the water out of the end of a hose. That's how we used to drink in the old days when we were kids was out of the end of a hose. Think about how much, just out of a hose, you just dump on the ground. Now, no doubt, it was obviously enough for all the people to drink, but this is the way Joplin Emerson's mind think. I just wondered exactly what percentage of that river physically made it into their bodies. That's what I'm wondering. If there were a way we had a pie chart to take a look at what percentage of the supply that God offered actually made it into the bodies of those people, I'm going to bet it's less than 1%. And here's what God's trying to communicate to us. His supply is so vast beyond anything we could ever imagine, not just ask, but we don't even comprehend how full His supply is for us and how little of it we're able to even take in when we're taking in as much as we can. The water poured forth like a river. Now what I want us to see We have to connect what did this water represent. And the answer is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look what Jesus said about it in John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, Jesus understood the rock had to be smitten first, but when it did, there was going to burst forth this living river of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. And no doubt, this is why in Acts chapter 2, I think verse 18, in Acts chapter 2, it tells us on the day of Pentecost, and Peter's talking about what happened, he says God had said that he would pour out his Spirit upon his maidservants and his menservants upon male and female, upon all of us, upon all of his church, that God would pour out his spirit. Now here is the great lesson, brothers and sisters, that God has poured out his spirit upon his church in a way that is above and abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or imagine. Here is the lesson, and I pray that we do not miss it. We probably hardly understand even 1% of all that God has really given us. That God has poured out His Spirit upon you and upon me as the sons and daughters of God in a way that is above and abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Might I even say, even comprehend. And not only is this life-giving supply poured out upon His church, upon us, the Bible says that you and I should be so filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what Jesus said, that it flows out of us. Like a river of living water. That's awesome. It's not just for me. 
We're not just consumers of God's grace and mercy. And thank God that we are that. Thank God that we need and that we can receive God's mercy and grace. That we can receive the Holy Spirit. But God said, I'm going to fill you so much that it's going to flow out of you like a river of living water. Praise the Lord. This is what we are to be living like, brothers and sisters. In such a way that when we come in contact with people, it changes people. I've said it this way before, and when you hear it first time, it just sounds like a weird statement. But when you understand what I'm saying, you'll understand what I'm saying. I've said it before. I want to be the type of person that when somebody answers the phone, the very words coming out of my mouth have the capacity to change somebody's life. I want to be the type of person that if I just show up in the room, there's a chance somebody's life might be changed. Now that sounds crazy the first time you hear it. But when you understand God's design, and you understand that He created us not just to be receivers, but givers, and not just givers, but like rivers of life flowing out of us, We should want to live that way, and I argue there should even be an expectancy that this is the truth. There should be an expectancy. There shouldn't be some weird thought to the Christian that somehow we could walk with that type of life-giving power. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to come in such a way that it is poured out on you, and through you it is poured out on others. Number three this morning, note, That the rock was the source of the water. It's a very important point. In other words, it wasn't as if God brought Moses to some massive rock that was blocking a stream somehow fed by the earth. And that when God split that rock, Finally, that stream that had been there all along could flow. No, 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 no. The rock itself was the source of the water. The water flowed from the rock. Let that sink in. What's God teaching us, brothers and sisters? It's real simple. That the rock, Christ Jesus, is the source and the only source of this living water. When Israel found themselves in a barren wilderness, there was no supply. But bless God, there was a rock. Think about it. May the Holy Spirit give us understanding this morning. When they were looking for water, when they were looking for a stream, when they were looking for what made sense to provide their, uh, uh, to quench their thirst... There was nothing in the desert that could supply that. That's why it's called a desert. But you know what does real well in deserts? Rocks. Now get you, wrap your mind around it. The rock was there before they ever got there. The Lord goes before us. He is with us. It says it's amazing because the rock was there before they got there. But do you remember the wording of 1 Corinthians? It said that the rock followed them. 
God is teaching us that no matter where you're at, whatever desert we go through, whatever wilderness we walk through, the rock, brothers and sisters, it is always there. And it is our source. And because the rock is there, and because the rock is our source, you and I never lack, no matter what we are facing in this wilderness of this world. It is the source. How can I lack when Christ Jesus is the source from which I drink? How can I lack when I have been so filled with the Holy Ghost that He flows out of me like a river of living water? I cannot... I cannot press upon us enough the need to grasp this truth. It is a game changer. And if if we will get really honest with ourselves and not spin and not make excuses, if we get real honest with ourselves, we will admit Generally, most often, the source of our depression, the source of our anxiety, the source of our fear, is fear of lack. We want something we don't have. And whatever that something is that we don't have, it changes for all of us. But we feel like we would no longer be anxious, we would no longer be depressed, we would no longer be sorrowful if I only had this assurance. If I only had this thing to change in my life so I didn't lack in this area, then I would be at peace. Maybe God's led you right to where you are. You're just failing miserably like the rest of us. To teach you something. So that we'll quit looking to those things and instead we'll look to the rock. Can I let you in on a little secret? I don't like the journey any more than you do. I don't like the times that I'm in that place where it's like, what I feel like I need, I'm not getting it. I don't like it when I'm in those places where, I, where, where it's difficult and I'm not real sure how I'm going to get through something and, 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 and why God would lead me to a certain place and how we could get here. I don't, I, I don't like it. My heart gets just like everyone else in this room and just like the people of our text. There are times in my life when I, find, I get frustrated enough and I'm like, God, I'm doing your will. I've gone where you told me to go. I'm trying to be a good Christian, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a father, trying to be a good pastor, and it all leads to nothing. Look where it leads me. Woo, woo, woo is me. Believe it or not, every now and then I can get there. Here's one of the things I learn constantly in those moments when I feel like I'm all alone. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not ashamed to say it. Sometimes pastoring is a very lonely business. There are times that I feel like I'm all alone. And then I'm reminded that before I ever got there, the rock was there. 
And God reminds me, son, you started looking at people a little too much to give you purpose and meaning in your life. And when people became people, and they do what people do, and they do people things, all of a sudden you got your little feelings hurt. And you need to start learning to find me as your only source of perfect life. And I am more than enough for you. I have always been more than enough for you. I am more than enough for you. I will always be more than enough for you. And son, when you get your eyes on me and you drink from this spiritual rock, you'll find I won't leave you high and dry like everybody else. And you'll find that your little pity party don't make a lot of sense because so-and-so might be doing you wrong. You might not be getting this or that over there. But the God of heaven and earth, who is far superior to anybody on this planet, He loves you perfectly. He provides for you perfectly. He is with you always. He has rescued you and redeemed you. How can you lack? All of a sudden I realize my pity party, my anxiousness, my depression, it really doesn't make a lot of sense in light of the truth. The rock, number four this morning, the rock was never to be struck again. If you're a student of the scriptures, you know that there's a time later when Moses strikes the rock again. And when Moses strikes the rock again, it is so repulsive to God that Moses is not even allowed to enter the promised land. And this is Moses' only major failure. But let's look at it together. Uh, five verses in Numbers 20. Verses 7 through 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff, notice these words, from before the Lord. I'll explain that in a moment. As he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you? Out of this rock, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This event in Numbers 20 is almost 40 years later. So the, 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 the striking of the rock that we've studied this morning took place at the very front end of their wilderness journey. Very first part of it. And, they, and they're in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. This Numbers 20 event is like 40 years later. And here is Moses' only major failure since meeting God at the burning bush. And while it might seem small in our eyes, it was large enough in God's eyes that he wouldn't even allow Moses, after leading the people for 40 years, 
to take him into the promised land. Why was it such a big deal? First of all, almost everything in Numbers 20 is in great contrast to Exodus chapter 17. The rock in Exodus 17 foreshadowed the death of Jesus. But the rock in Numbers 20, it shadows Jesus seated on high. In fact, the word that's used for rock, two different words. We translate it rock in English, but we don't really have a word for this particular. In Numbers, it literally means an elevated rock. Like we don't actually have a, a, a specific term in English for an elevated rock. We would have to say that to explain the difference between the rock up there and the rock down here. But in the original, there are two different words. And in Numbers, it's an elevated rock. It pictures Christ elevated on high. Also, note that God tells Moses in Exodus 17 to strike the rock. But here in Numbers 20, he tells Moses to speak to the rock. For once the rock of Christ Jesus had been struck down, we know that the veil was torn in two so that now we have access directly to speak to God. Hebrews 4 teaches us that we can go boldly to the throne of grace and find help and mercy in our time of need. Once the rock had been struck, it it did not need to be struck again. Also note the rod is different. I've already explained to you Moses' rod was a rod of judgment. But in Exodus chapter, or excuse me, in Numbers 20, God tells Moses to get the rod that was from before the Lord. We saw those words? That means the rod, Aaron's rod, that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And Aaron's rod, it symboled two things. Number one, it was a rod of life. You'll remember that Aaron and, and Moses were being called out by the rest of the elders eventually. And they're like, why do you all have the right to lead us? God says, well, why don't we just do a little test here? Let's get uh, one man as a leader of each tribe. Everybody bring their rods. What's a, a rod's a dead piece of wood, isn't it? And we're going to throw them in a pile. And whoever's rod comes to life and begins to sprout buds, that's who it is that God has chosen. Aaron's rod sprouted life. It was a picture of the priestly rod. And what do priests do? They stand as mediators between us and God. They speak to God on our behalf in the Old Testament. And it is a picture of life, not of death. God said, go get that rod. And you come towards me with the priestly rod that represents the way from man to me and represents the way of life, and you simply speak to the rock. What a picture of the reality that once Jesus has been struck down, brothers and sisters, and we've been given the new life, that you and I can go directly to God, that we can speak to God. And so Moses, Moses got tired after 40 years. Who could blame him? I don't know that any of us would have lasted as long as Moses did, but Moses got angry. He didn't just strike the rock. He struck it twice. He was frustrated. Moses was probably thinking what all of us would have thought. Here we are again after 40 years. 
and he thought back to what happened 40 years ago when he struck that rock, and this time he just walks up to it, and instead of speaking to the rock like he was told to do, he speaks to the crowd, you bunch of rebels, you want water, fine. And he takes it and he smashes that rock twice, and it was so repulsive to God, God said, no, it doesn't work that way, Moses. And because you've done this, I'm not letting you into that promised land. I'm not going to let you walk the people in and finish this job. We're going to have to have someone else do it. The lesson is so simple, brothers and sisters. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. Here's the simple thing that God's teaching us here in Numbers 20. Never again will the rock be struck twice. Our Savior, bless God, he was struck down. His life, he laid it down for you and I. He died a cruel death. He was crucified and he breathed his last and he was buried and he rose from the dead. But here's what the Bible tells us. That he, Jesus said, I am he who was dead but is alive forevermore. And that he has defeated death, hell, and the grave. That he holds the keys, brothers and sisters. He is the risen king. And when he comes back, he will never be struck down again. All of hell will conspire with many of the nations of this earth against Jesus when he returns, but he will strike them down. He will not be struck down this time because the Lamb of God, the rock of God, will never be struck twice. That's the lesson of Numbers 20 this morning. So I ask you the question, what are you trusting in today? First of all, to the Christian, you're in your journey. Can you see this morning, brothers and sisters, that the supply that God gives is not, to say it's more than enough is such an understatement. It's vast beyond our ability to understand how much more it is than what we need. It's everything we need, but it's more than that. Can you see this morning that the rock is the it's the only source. There's no other source. And when we try to look to any other source, we'll find our hearts wavering back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Can you see this morning that, that it's God that leads us to the place of testing? We need to quit blaming people, quit blaming others. Really ask ourselves, God, what is it you're trying to teach me? Can we see this morning that we need to be more like Moses in times of trial and difficulty instead of being angry at people recognizing God you're the one that led us to this trial so Lord the question is what would you have me do so what is, what, what's the thing in your life this morning Christian that God's wanting to deal with and how is he wanting to deal with it 